Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Nora Beanie and I, to be direct, go way back. We go back to his incredible foresight in seeing the challenges of 08 and 09 in 2005 and 2006. We go back to that morning when Osama bin Laden uh, was killed. That was a shock as he and I took the stage at Milken Institute. And now, in this stunningly historic moment for this nation, we speak with Noriel uh, Rubini. Noriel, what is so important here is the guesstimates of your profession done with great care and great respect. I was dumbfounded today that the Bank of England framed negative 14% GDP with an abrupt reversal to positive 15%. Would you explain just shortly here, why will we not see a V-shaped recovery? Well, there are many reasons. I wrote a paper where I presented 14 reasons. (laughs) I tried to be We don't have time for 14, (laughs) Oriel. Yeah, but I think the main point is as follows. Uh, the balance sheets and the P&Ls of both the household sector and the corporate sector are damaged, and the corporate sector had too much leverage. So coming out of the crisis, people will have, first of all, less income. <clears throat> Secondly, because of what happened, they need to have more precautionary savings because if you end up with another second or third wave, you're really in trouble. So you have less income, you have to increase your saving rate, so your consumption is going to slow down sharply in order to build up your savings. Investment of the household sector is going to collapse. Investment means purchase of new homes because credit scores are going to be damaged and people cannot take the risk of buying a home if they don't have a home, uh, a job. And on the corporate sector, same thing. You have the highly leveraged corporate sector. It has to deleverage by increasing savings and reducing investment right. tax. What are the savings of the corporate sector? Revenue minus cost. Which kind of cost are going to cut? Labor costs. We've been shedding. 30 to 40 million jobs right right now. So that's a rebalancing of the financial balances of households and corporates. More saving, less investment implies that the recovery, like after the global financial crisis, has to be a U. Noriel, your charm here, even with your public service to the nation of serving President Clinton, is you have an old world ethos. Your study, your academics out of Italy, and your your real focus on a European view. I put Nassim Taleb sort of in that same cultural sphere, and even Dr. Alarian folks as well. Noriel, with this pandemic, do we lose the American spirit and American exceptionalism and American optimism, or are you optimistic we can get that optimism back? Uh, I'm worried about America because during this crisis, uh, America is not leading. After 9-11, the U.S. created a coalition to fight al-Qaeda and the terrorists. After the global financial crisis, the U.S. led the global effort to find a coordination to this uh, crisis. This time around, the U.S. is missing in action. Is unilateralist, is protectionist, is isolationist, and both the hard power, but more importantly, the soft power of the U.S. is falling. And look at China. Uh, the, the virus started in China, but China is very aggressive in providing financial aid to other countries, medical equipment, drugs, you name it, and they're on a charm offensive and they're winning it. So the soft power of China is rising. The soft power of the U.S. is really declining because the U.S. is missing in action. It's AWOL on the international stage. 
even among our allies. So I think that the American exceptionalism is gone. The American power is declining in relative and absolute terms. And you'll have a decline of U.S. power and the rise of power of China. And the Cold War between U.S. and China is going to become a colder war because of this crisis. So, Professor, are you, to what extent do you think that global, globalism in general is on the decline? Is that, is that just clear to you that globalism is on the decline and nationalism is on the uh, you know, uh, increase? Yes, I think that we reached already peak globalization at the time of the global financial crisis. There were already movements towards uh, protectionist nationalism, the election, for example, of Donald Trump. But because of this crisis, the tendency towards uh, deglobalization, decoupling between U.S. and China, balkanization of global supply chains, first in the tech sector, pharma products, even the food chain is going to be balkanized because people want to keep their food at home because they worry about food supply, and fragmentation of the global economy. All these things were already occurring, and it's going to be accelerating. And while there is going to be some reshoring of economic activity from China and Asia to the United States and Europe, that's not going to create jobs because we're going to produce from places where there is lower labor cost to places where there is higher labor cost, and therefore that reshoring is going to be capital-intensive, more robotic, more automation, more AI. So it's not going to help the jobs the reshoring of economic activity back to North America. All right, so Professor, how long do you think this contraction will last? So if we're not in a V-shaped recovery, is this two, three, four quarters, or maybe even something more? No, I do believe it's going to be only a two-quarter uh, recession, first and second quarter. We're going to see positive growth uh, throughout the world in the third quarter of the year. And by the way, in the third quarter, you could see even actually growth rates for the U.S. that are double digits at the annualized rate for one quarter because, you know, there's a complete collapse of economic activity for two quarters. So once you start from that low base, it's very easy to show a quarter of, say, 12% growth annualized. 12% growth annualized means 3% within the quarter. It's nothing 3%, but annualized looks like 12 So it can happen for a quarter or a second quarter, but my view is that these forces that are going to bring you, first of all, to a second wave, in the third wave of the virus, they're going to lead you to such a massive loss of income and the precautionary savings of the household sector. You can reopen the stores as much as you want, like in Berlin, like in right. Germany, like in China. Mm-hmm. People are not going to spend if they don't have income, and they're scared. Therefore, by next year, the IMF is expecting that this year, global growth goes down 3%, and next year is growing 6%, twice as much as potential. In my view, instead, this year is down 3%. Um, with consensus on that. And next year, we'll have barely 3% growth for the global economy. So we're not going to make up for the loss of jobs right. and income right. and GDP of this year. That, the V is a uh, story about this year and next year. Right. The U is a story about next year. Within the jobs report and the better equity markets, I thought we'd digress here. And we can do that with a new digital project of Noel Rabini. He has been a pioneer and market economics folded into his first-rate academic international economics at the New York uh, University. And he's gone all digital on us with the, the stylish stud photographic image on norieltoday.com. Uh, Dr. Rubini, what is norieltoday.com? Well, twice a week I do a broadcast uh, of about an hour and a half where I discuss what's going on in the global economy in the market, and topics like uh, the oil market, what's going to happen to the eurozone, the future of money and digital currencies, uh, whether we're in a bubble, and uh, assorted topics. Right. So it's a format that is much longer, an hour and a half, 
rather than five minutes of it. Okay, great. Uh, so, so basically, yeah. So basically, you're competing with me. I love it, Noriel. Wonderful. <laughs> no, Noriel, I can never <laughs> compete with you. You are a Noriel, <laughs> Noriel, let us talk about. Let's talk about the zeitgeist, Noriel. And, yeah. and this, folks, is so important. And trust me, folks, I, the only time I've ever seen Billions is when my kids called me up and said, oh, my God, you, I was on it, like in the background on a TV image, and that's all my kids care about. Noriel, even Billions, the TV show, is talking up Bitcoin this year. And let's be yeah. blunt. You are scathing in your criticism of Bitcoin. What does yeah. everybody enthused get wrong? Well, first of all, there was a bubble in Bitcoin and crypto in 2017, but it already has gone bust. I mean, Bitcoin, you reach a peak of 20,000. And even with the rally this year, it's a bit depending on the day, 55 to 60% below its peak. Other top 10 cryptocurrencies are about 80% down from the peak. And 3,000 plus of those, what I call technically shit coins, have lost 99% of their value. So this is a bubble that has already gone bust. Secondly, some people say that the Bitcoin is a good hedge against risk of episodes. When the markets are down, it's a hedge. It's like hedge funds. Look at what happened in February and March. The stock market in the U.S. went down by 35%. Bitcoin went down by 50%. And the other top 10 cryptocurrency went down by 65%. So when markets are in risk off, Bitcoin and crypto doesn't go up. It's not a hedge. It goes down more than the market. So it's not even mm. a hedge against a risk off or okay. dealing with a negative animal spirit. It just doesn't just, work. Just, okay, just because of time, Noriel, you're going to do this, folks. You can tune into NorielToday.com with Dr. Rubini. I believe it's tomorrow, and he's going to go on for this for eight hours. Noriel, in a couple minutes here, you even go after the institution's talking up blockchain and the line i get is yeah bitcoin's suspect but blockchain's the real deal and you don't agree with that no blockchain is the most overhyped and uh, least useful uh, technology in human history Why? And by the way it's a blockchain in name only because all this corporate dlt or corporate blockchain is not really blockchain it's private rather than public it's permissioned rather than permissionless it's centralized rather decentralized, and it's based on a system of uh, trusted authorities validating it rather than being trustless. So they call it a kind of a blockchain because it's sexy, but there's nothing to do with blockchain. It's just a glorified that okay. that they call blockchain. It's not blockchain. And every okay, experiment so- in blockchain has failed. There is not a single use case of blockchain that's worked. Banks okay, spend so- billions of dollars. They've done use cases. They don't have a single app. Okay, Norrell, so you and I are at the Espresso Bar in Davos, and we're hanging out with yeah. all the starlets and all that. And Brian Moynihan of Bank of America or Bill Winters of Standard Charter or Mr. Diamond from J.P. Morgan, they wander by, and you're going to tell them their banking blockchain business is suspect? Well, Moynihan made an interview recently, and he said, we spent tons of money on blockchain experiments. We've done actually tons of patents on blockchain stuff, and we have not seen yet a single application works. He said so. The CEO of MasterCard said so. The CEO of Wells Fargo said so. They all have invested tons of money in blockchain. They tried it because it was a new technology and the shareholders were saying, why don't we try it? They tried it. And like tons of other technology, it doesn't work and they're not using it. Nobody's using it. It's a joke. 
What else are you going to talk about with blockchain and Bitcoin? I mean, Nora, you're going to, this is going to be on fire, folks. This will be out on our podcast. And, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin crew is going to go nuts. Are you telling me it's going to zero or does it have a fair well, value? The real value, the real value? The real value of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is not zero. It's negative because they are energy hawks. Since you have 50,000 validators validating every transaction on Bitcoin, the amount of energy used is more than the entire energy used by Switzerland in a year. So it's an environmental disaster. If we're taxing properly for this negative externality, the price should not be zero. It should be negative because you have to impose a tax for something that's such an environmental disaster and energy hog. The value is negative. It's not positive. Norieltoday.com, folks, tune in Friday where Dr. Rubini is going to go mental on Bitcoin. And that was a, just a whisper of what you'll hear as well. Nor Rubini at NYU and, again, his new blog, Norieltoday.com. Turning now to the Bank of England, leaving policy unchanged today, but the governor signaling there could be stimulus ahead. We've made a very strong commitment. This is, this is more and faster than the Bank of England has ever done before. We're keeping more options open. Two of my colleagues on the committee you know, voted to do more QE now. Uh, other members of the committee thought that it was a sensible decision to, to take in, 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 in our next meeting. We're not ruling anything out at the moment because it would be un, unwise of us to rule anything out uh, in terms of responses. So I, I don't want to say we're nearer to negative rates, uh, but we're not ruling anything out. Governor Andrew Bailey speaking to Bloomberg a little bit earlier on. On the road ahead, Tom, on the road ahead, it looks like it has more stimulus and more QE uh, in it. Come on. John, this is so important, folks. And there was a, you know Excel spreadsheet with two underlined red marks. It is preposterous, John, to model negative 14% with an immediate reversal up 15%. How do they come up with that? Well, I think it's also impossible to model the recovery, Tom, which I wonder is the reason why they waited to do stimulus in June because they don't know how big they're going Fair. to go. Fair. And I think perhaps they want a month of reopening behind them before they project forwards how much stimulus they're going to need. I think it's inevitable at this point, given what we heard from Haskell yeah. and Saunders this morning, given what we've just heard from the governor, that more QE is coming. It's just how big is the next stimulus okay. package, the next envelope from the BOE going to be? We welcome all of you coast to coast here in America. John, let me ask a simple question. I'll go to Ian Shepherdson in Newcastle because that football team is... They're, they're, I'm glad they're glad Premier League shut down. What's the difference in a labor depression in England, in London, in, in your Mayfair, John, versus Newcastle? Well, quite clearly, Tom, the cities and how they're going to reopen is going to be very different to how things open in the north of England. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that across states <clears throat> in the United States as well. We're going to have different sequencing of reopenings for different parts of the country. Right. Let's advance this discussion. Marcus Ashworth joins us right now, Bloomberg Opinion. Marcus, Lord Skidelsky was on yesterday talking about a depression with inflation. Is that even feasible in the Ashworth universe? Yeah, and I even saw someone write about hyperdeflation, um, which is a new one on me. But I think what we're going to have is this horrid uh, dual hit of, of certain things Seeing sharp inflation, clearly food prices, I think that's something that's going to be really felt hardest in emerging markets. But at the same time, overall deflation, and we're seeing that. You look at the numbers out of South Korea, that's got to be a very big warning sign for China. Low inflation coming into deflation, that's going to hit in Europe very evidently if it's not there already. We're going to get that round, round the globe. And that's why the Bank of England governor isn't ruling out negative rates. I think it's the Fed and the Bank of England really, really don't want to go down there. 
But as John was saying earlier, QE is going to keep on coming. It has to. The Bank of England will finish its buybacks probably by the end of June into July. It needs to reload. There's a big wall of supply coming. And I think we'll see $100 billion worth of QE minimum in June and another again in August from the Bank of England. Marcus, how much do you expect the Bank of England to expand into corporate debt and how far into particularly junk bonds, the way that the uh, United States Federal Reserve has shown a willingness to do? A fantastic question. And I note, uh, according to Jeff Gunnelak, that maybe the Fed hasn't quite actually really bought any junk bonds yet or not very much. But the point is they, they, they put it out there that they will. They've done this corporate, uh, sorry, commercial paper buying stuff. We're seeing some signs that the European Central Bank might do it. They're taking it in collateral already. They wouldn't rule it out in the last meeting. The Bank of England has got about $20 billion worth of corporate bond buying to do. It's, it previously had done $10 billion and stopped. This was uh, you know, a few years, a couple of years ago or so. I think it will skew more towards corporate. But again, a bit like John said, they're going to wait until a lot of stuff to, for a month worth of, 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 of re- reopening, see how the economy uh, has reacted in June, and if it's needed, they'll go into the real economy more. They'll buy corporate bonds more. You know, we we see some big signs. You know, GlaxoSmithKline did a one and a half billion pound uh, bond issue this week. More of that sort of stuff. If it's helping spreads, then possibly also they're going to jump bonds as well. They're, as they said, they're not ruling anything out. As you know, though, Marcus, the sterling credit market just does not have the depth compared to what you would see here in the United States. For the Bank of England to make a difference, they've got to work through the banking channel, haven't they? What else can they do? Well, there's no doubt about it. There's nothing like the U.S. uh, corporate bond market. But the sterling one has its moments. But the thing that the Bank of England did last time around after the Brexit referendum in 2016 was this thing called Term Funding Scheme, TFS. They're doing it again. It transformed the mortgage market by boosting all the challenger banks. The second they turn those TFS taps off, the challenger banks are nowhere. So it clearly works. They are trying to put stuff into the economy. They're trying to get banks to lend. They're realizing that their, their first scheme didn't work. They're going to have to go up to 50,000, 100% of, of loans guaranteed by the government. They're looking at anything and everything, very much like the European model of Teltro's, of going into real economy loans. So they'll be, they'll be working on, on everything and everything. Marcus Ashworth, always great to get your thoughts on a programme. Marcus, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Marcus Ashworth joining us out of London on the road ahead for the Bank of England. We start with Ben Laidler of Tower Hudson Research. The CEO joins us on the phone right now. Ben, fantastic to catch up with you. Let's just talk about this economy as we reopen before we turn to equities. How quickly can this labour market heal? Uh, I think it's going to be reasonably slow. I mean, we can argue whether it's a swoosh or a U or, 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 or whatever it is. But um, I, I just, I mean, the numbers are dramatic. You've touched on them, right? I mean, we're going to have 22% the headline jobless. I mean, it's not quite as bad as that. I mean, a lot of those are furloughed rather than unemployed, but it's completely unprecedented. We, we get sort of slightly, um, you know, numbed by the numbers, right? I mean, we talk about 3 million as if it's, um, you know, yeah, better than last week, but um, completely unprecedented versus where we were six weeks ago. I, I look, Ben, at, at all this news flow, and, and if we can take it over to your United Kingdom, and we're thrilled you could come to us from London uh, today, and if we look at a collapsing labor economy, the stock market seems removed. Why is that? I, I think a couple of things, right? I mean, uh, equity market is, is not the economy, right? There's a lot more tech. There's a lot less small business, a lot less consumer, a lot less real estate. So, you know, you're comparing apples with oranges a little bit. 
um, you know, equity markets forward looking. I mean, the incremental data is from here is, is frankly all positive, right? Um, you know, we're getting less jobless. It's still 3 million. It's still a ghastly number, but it's a lot better than it was last yeah. week and, and the, week, the week before that. And, and that goes for, frankly, every single data point you're looking at from here. Uh, uh, I think you- earnings have been slashed slashed enough. Q, Q1 is actually, I would argue, better than expected. I mean, I, so I, I think we've just discounted an right. awful lot, sentiment, terrible, and the incremental data point from here is, um, is, is going to continue to be positive for, you know, certainly for the near future. Wildly against your call are those that say the fangs are overdone. I saw some charts somewhere overnight of the continued extension of the fangs relative to everything else. Why is that? I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, you know, they have more than double um, the profitability, growth, a much better balance sheet of, of anything else out there. And relative to that, I, I think valuations are actually, um, you know, very undemanding. They're, it's going to be one sector that comes out of this uh, uh, crisis in much better shape uh, and, and, than it went in. Uh, you know, less competition, arguably less you know, regulatory oversight, um, and, and, and that's an important call. I mean, as you know, you know, FANG's you know, close to 25% of this market uh, at, at this point, and, and I would argue, you know, the real, the real anchor here. Implicit in your call for FANG's and this idea that they've got a consolidation of business and less scrutiny from regulators is a loss of business in other areas of the economy and a huge transformation, frankly, of the way business is done to a bigger focus even on on the online space. I'm just wondering, you said furloughs are not the same things as layoffs, and yet Sean Donnan and Joe Doe of Bloomberg News wrote a story yesterday basically saying a lot of these temporary layoffs are becoming permanent. How much do you see that accelerating as a lot of these old economy businesses don't find a reason to exist in the same way that they did in the past. Yeah, that's, that's a huge risk. And, and, you know, what you're seeing in, with the earnings numbers and what you're seeing with the economy is just this, this, this bifurcation is just getting sort of even more brutal. And you see that in your face in, in, in the first quarter numbers. You know, you're either in a sector whose earnings were down 30 percent plus or you're in the other 50% of the sectors in the U.S. where your earnings are up 5%. Um, you know, forget about the absolute numbers, but you know that is there's very little in between. So we're touching you know, on the debate of the really, moment. Really, really bad right now, or or, or or things are okay. And just to jump in and ask a question, Ben, this is the debate of the moment. Will there be a reopening rotation? Are you saying there won't be? Uh, I, I, there will absolutely will be a, as a margin, right? I mean, but, you know, if you look at what we own today, I, I think those sort of quality growth sectors, you know, tech, healthcare, absolutely core positions, you know, regardless of, of what's happening. I think now, though, with the reopening, I mean, if you look globally, you know, that sort of that that index of um, you know lockdown is sort of loosened by sort of five, six, seven percent, um, and and that's driven a twenty percent rebound in the last couple of weeks of uh, our sort of proxy for economic activity. You need to look for things that are exposed to that off the bottom. So, you know, yeah. we like small cap. We, we, we like, uh, you know, we like real estate. We've just upgraded. You know, we've become less bearish on, on things like energy. So, um, you know, we're running a bit of a barbell portfolio. But quality growth, definitely the, the sort of core of it. But I would be definitely adding sort of cyclicals here as, again, that incremental data point is positive. You're adding real estate, really. I am really interested to know whether you're actually adding office space as well, especially as the likes of J.P. Morgan says that some of these work-from-home arrangements might become a permanent feature. Yeah, I mean, so the history of real, so a, real estate's changed. I mean, a lot of it is, is not the sort of traditional real estate you've sort of historically looked at, and then the baby's sort of been thrown out with the bathwater a little bit sort of in that sort of downturn. A lot of it is 
sort of industrial specialized, you know, data centers, et cetera, et cetera, which are pretty, pretty immune here. You know, real estate did very, very well off the bottom of the, uh, of the global financial crisis. Obviously, things are a little bit sort of different this time around, but uh, in many cases for the better, right? A lot less leverage, more sustainable dividends. Absolutely, some sub-segments sub are going to see some pretty significant changes. But, you know, as I think some of these people are going to find out, it's a lot more difficult to get out of your office leases sometimes than, uh, uh, than you might want. Ben, one thing we haven't talked about, and I know you're U.S.-centric and big cap-centric as well, is, is we all look at portfolios, the international stocks seem way, way behind. Are they an uncommon value now, or is that just something to walk away from for years? I definitely think there are opportunities there. I mean, we've argued for a while that China you know, is, is, the, is the safe haven here, the sort of first in to the crisis, first out of the crisis, you know, very cheap market, a lot of policy flexibility. Um, so, you know, we're overweight Chinese equities. You know, we added to European banks uh, not so long ago. I mean, it sounds crazy, but again, following that sort of first in, first out sort of narrative, you know, Europe's sort of opening up here and, and the whole is, you know, is just huge in Europe. Uh, I mean, you, you've got a, a sense of it with a you know, negative 14 percent, you know, UK GDP forecast. But, you know, Europe is, you know, the epicenter of this sort of GDP slowdown. And, and we're looking for things that are, you know, the most exposed to that sort of incremental data point off, off the bottom here. And, and, and yeah. banks I mean, it's pretty much European banks, pretty much the cheapest sector in the world. John, to hear Ben Laidler say minus 14 percent UK GDP. I'm sorry, I'm oh, not incredible. used to it. I'm, it's incredible. I'm just, I'm, folks, these numbers we're talking to you about, we've never framed. John? And just to confirm for, for Ben, it does sound crazy. You're right, and we'll find out in a number of months if it was a crazy idea, and we'll catch up with you again soon. <laughs> ben, I appreciate your time. But there's no pressure, Ben. <laughs> I was ben thinking Lather the same thing. <laughs> Tower Hudson Research joining us on the road ahead for the economy and what you should do in this market. AXA, or AXA, is a wonderful French institution, and they have David Page. He is one of the most acute analysts of this mixture of policy, economics, and then rolling it over into the markets and the long-term responsibilities of AXA. Mr. Page joins us right now. David, we're having this historic moment, this place in it, and yet we still come down to the micro data and today a more difficult claims report than many expected. Will this adjust your call for tomorrow's jobs report? Not really. And I think, you know, in terms of the detail of April's number, you know, it, it, it's going to be a horrible number. We actually forecast an unemployment rate of 15.5%. But to some extent, if it's 15.5% or 16% or 16 and a half. You know, it doesn't matter. It's a, a it's a poor number, and it's going to get worse. I mean, I think you're right to focus on continuing claims. There is, you know, strangely, a couple of factors that are seeing the cumulative initial claims come in way above the, the continuing claims. There are new jobs being created, and that's reducing it a bit. And there's also a bit of uncertainty about who's furloughed and who's not furloughed, and that that uncertainty is going to last till the end of June. But May looks like, you know, based on what we're seeing today that we'll see a higher number, whatever number we get tomorrow for April. But we do think that May will be the peak. Now, trying to judge how quickly unemployment falls thereafter is, is, is very difficult. And there's much more uncertainty in the U.S. market than, for example, in Europe, where there's a, a much more rigorous sort of job support scheme being put in place by the government. But, you know, U.S. government is trying to do that as well. We've seen the PPE, uh, sorry, the PPP um, program 
supporting paychecks, trying to keep um, workers furloughed. So we do expect to see unemployment fall back very, very sharply from, you know, probably from high levels in May that are close to 20%, we think, unemployment in May. But we do think that as you get into the sort of final months of this year, that'll be back down to sort of below, certainly below 10%. We're looking at a figure of around 7.5%. Um, the Federal Reserve of Atlanta put out an interesting survey a few days back where they suggested that 75% of gross um, claimants were probably temporarily unemployed and so should move back. So that gives you a sort of very sharp upswing in, in unemployment, but also looks like you'll see a, a very sharp drop as well. Yeah. That's what well, leads to the, the scale of the second half recovery, but there's a great degree of uncertainty around its size. Well, David, I wanted to go to that uncertainty right now. I'm hearing you talk about a sharp bounce back, and certainly that seems to be the sentiment among a lot of uh, equity traders, as you see equity futures that are near recession highs right now ahead of the U.S. Open, even after this devastating number, these devastating economic figures we keep getting. How can you model that at a time when it's so unclear whether even people will go back to movie theaters and restaurants and sports events, whether sports will even be open, whether we're going to see a resurgence in viruses, what the lag effect will be for people who lost their jobs, who suddenly will be less willing to make that discretionary expenditure? How do you model for that? Well, as you suggest, with a large degree of humility and with very wide confidence intervals, I mean, it's, it's incredibly like, you know, it's incredibly plausible that you see a much worse outcome come through. And of course, what we can't model for, what we just simply don't know is what the virus is going to do in the second half of the year. Our projections are based on uh, a benign scenario where social easing or the restrictions of social measures continue at a measured pace across the second half, and that allows for a recovery to come back. But we don't know, um, particularly in the US, where the easing of restrictions has come through much quicker than we've seen in other parts of the globe we would argue that there is a greater risk of a second wave developing. And if that second wave does actually come about you know, in the US or elsewhere in the globe, then that's going to have a material impact as well. So we do have to recognise that there's a significant uncertainty around that and then try and make some suggestions on top of that. What, what we're arguing is that given the economic support that the US government has provided the labour market, a lot of this material number, this material increase in unemployment should be temporary. But you know, a lot of it will obviously be policy dependent, not just you know support for the labour market, but as you say, how much of restrictions are going to come back and how much, uh, what the new normal is going to look like. Well, David, let's talk about the support that we have had from the administration and when that support actually fades. We've had enhanced unemployment benefits. We've had checks sent out to everyday Americans. When does that fade? Pretty soon. Um, I mean, it, it sounds bizarre. We're talking about you know, a headline measure that's about 12.5% of GDP. It's a huge stimulus. And yet we think it's, in terms of the fiscal support, we think it's primarily targeted over the next few months. We know that the extension to unemployment benefits, um, for example, runs for four months. It runs through July. Um, and at this stage, that's it. Now, that's brilliant in terms of trying to fill in the hole that the drop-in activity is going to produce. And it does that pretty well. Um, so right. I think there's a good chance that, for example, household incomes don't don't fall in the second quarter, which would be um, incredibly successful in terms of policy if that can be achieved. Right. But as you suggest, there is going to be need for stimulus thereafter, and at the moment it's lacking, and I think that's where you start thinking about this phase four stimulus that's already being discussed right. being employed. 
David, Chris Rupke at MUFG interpolates the jobs data, and he looks forward to tomorrow. He says it interpolates to an unemployment rate of 24.9%. Quote, it's official the pandemic job losses in the United States are depression magnitude. What is the David Page policy prescription to take us down from Mr. Rupke's interpolation of 25% unemployment? Well, as I say, that, that's not what our forecast is on the back of these numbers. Understood. Understood. Over 15. But even so, it's, it's a large number. Um, the, the policy prescription is effectively what we've got in place from the Federal Reserve. We've got material stimulus that's going to be ongoing. That's not going to fade in the second half of this year. And that does provide growth not just for this year, but actually primarily for next year and the year after. But we will need to see further fiscal stimulus. You need to build a vigorous recovery. You need to see economic growth. Uh, above potential, driven above potential. Consumers aren't going to do that alone. There's too much income lost because unemployment will stay higher than it was before the crisis. Corporates aren't going to do that. Corporates are coming out of this with much more debt and they're going to be much more cautious in how they conduct their spending, both hiring and investment. Therefore, it's going to be down to governments to drive this. Uh, and in the U.S., it means more fiscal stimulus is needed. You see, David, this, this is, this is critical, and I think high. it's really, really important. Language matters. And through much of the last few months, people, I think, mistakenly have used the word stimulus when actually it was aid. You don't try and stimulate an economy Correct. when it's in a shutdown. When we come out of this, we have to switch from aid to stimulus. Now, I'm trying to understand what those policy tools look like as we reopen. David, can you get your head around that? Because we've seen so much already. How does it change? How do they recalibrate the policy effort in Washington to adapt for the fact that we are coming out of a shutdown and we reopen? Well, some of it's likely to be in terms of doing still what they're doing. They're providing unemployment benefits, making sure that those that are unemployed that have lost their jobs because of this virus aren't suddenly seeing income drop off. If you see that income drop back for households, then that just makes it harder for households to spend. It means a drop in consumer spending. So you could expect to see a further extension, I think, in through of unemployment benefits. But some of this is going to be about trying to uh, invigorate corporate spending coming through again. And that's likely to involve different tax incentives. It's likely to involve trying to incentivize investment spend. And so that's going to be slightly different. And, and you're right, that is slightly different from a, a perspective where um, you're just providing a lifeline to these corporates to stay, to stay afloat. I think those are the sort of areas you'll see a difference come through. David, appreciate your time this morning. It's a tough time for a lot of people, especially the people behind those statistics. David Page there, Axter Investment Manager's Head of Macro Research on the jobless claims we had 12 minutes ago. It is National Nurses Week, but it is different this year. We've gotten some good perspective, particularly from the Johns Hopkins University and the Bloomberg School of Public Health, all of their medical platform. We should point out that Michael Bloomberg is a founder of Bloomberg LP, you know, the terminal and also this radio and television operation as well. And he is a philanthropist to his engineering school at Johns Hopkins University and much, much more. We spoke to their Jason Farley, professor of nursing at JHU, about the state of the profession. We are seeing glimmers of hope uh, where inpatient bed capacity is stable. Uh, we have a wonderful field hospital started by our governor who is helping to unpack the hospital from, from those who have left acute illness and who need to convalesce uh, in a controlled environment. And our ventilator uh, capacity is holding strong. So we are, all of those metrics are glimmers of hope uh, that we see at our health system. 
Jason Farley, do genetics play a very big role in who dies from COVID-19? You know, I think that's an important question, and we're currently investigating a variety of different types of genetic analyses. So there's very important differences in viral genetics. So are there differences in strains? We've heard lots about strains that come from China, strains that came from Europe. Uh, so pathogenicity of the virus itself is under investigation and those viral genetics. But more importantly is our host genetics. We as humans, what do our genes and how does our immune system respond? And so what we're seeing are evidence of individuals that may have some form of weakened immunity may have what we call a less of a strong cytokine storm, meaning the immune system doesn't respond as briskly, and therefore they may become ill, but as a result of their immune system not responding as briskly, they actually are the ones somewhat protected in moving forward into the need for mechanical ventilation. Because, because when the immune system doesn't act as briskly, you're not as overwhelmed by its response. Because remember, yeah. it's not the virus that actually does the bad thing. It's your immune system's response to how it um, responds to the virus. But, Jason, are, are there also disparities because of yeah. gender and race? And if there are, how, it, how can we protect the people most at risk? Yeah, well, when we think about from uh, a gender perspective, we are seeing data that men are at greater risk than women in terms of out bad outcome. Um, we, we have to pay very close attention related to there are increased cardiovascular and respiratory diseases in general. The prevalence is higher in men versus women. The same when you look at race. This has nothing to do genetically that we know of right now. This is to do with access to care, poverty, health disparities between populations. And so if you live in a community across any part of the world, that in which your community hospital, for example, is a low-resource hospital. It's more of a, a district non-academic hospital. You may have less available intensive care beds. You may have less available ventilator capacity. You may have less options of accessing a primary care provider, and that may mean you present later to care for evaluation. And so there are many things in that, uh, in that, at that question that need to be unpacked in relation to things that may influence differences in both gender and racial disparities that we are seeing with this virus. Jason Farley of Johns Hopkins at University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.